arguments don't have to be divisive. They should not be divisive. But because here's the question. In all of those arguments, how many have actually won the argument? Okay, I've got some hands showing. Okay. But a better question is, what does it mean that you won? How did you become a winner in that argument? Because we're going to look at what the Torah says about winning an argument. Believe it or not, it is in our Torah portion. It actually teaches us that the key to winning any argument is not by showing the other person how smart you are and how dumb they are. And it's not by showing the other person that I am right. But the ultimate goal is to come to an agreement. That's when an argument is won. Not that you triumphed over anyone. Not that they triumphed over you. There's an old joke about this wandering preacher that went from town to town. And in every town he got to, he'd been invited to give a sermon. He was known to be a very passionate speaker. He developed quite a reputation. There was only one problem. He only had one good sermon. And it was from Parashat Korach. What was troubling, though, is he'd be asked in many towns on different weeks of the year, which means, as you know, this comes up once a year. But it didn't matter what week it was of the year. That was the only sermon he had. So he would always speak. He would be asked, actually, to speak on the weekly parasha. And uh, as he began to speak, he said, it was said that he would accidentally take his Bible and knock it off the, the lectern. And when he bent down to pick it up, he would say, Oi, the earth has swallowed up the book. If you read the parsha, you would have caught that. The earth swallowed up the book. And then he said, which reminds me of when Korach and his followers were swallowed up by the earth. And then he would proceed to give his Korach sermon. Well, I know you're thankful that nobody here repeats the same sermon all the time. Not me, not Mouse, not Ron, not Norm, nobody. Except, well, we won't go back that far, but we've had visitors, visiting speakers come in and we've heard them repeat what they said to us a few years before that. That would probably be applicable to this preacher here. But our parasha is about Korach. And we find that he actually initiated what ended up being a revolt against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And he comes to Moses and Aaron and he, he rebukes them. We read it this morning. And he says, you've gone too far. He says, Because all the community is holy. Was he wrong? No. But certain people were selected by God to hold certain positions. 
So even though he was a Levite, Korach, he apparently wasn't satisfied with the position he had or the responsibilities that he was given. He wanted to be a priest. He probably wanted to be the high priest. So not only was he arguing with Moses, but he was arguing with Aaron because he wanted to be in the place of Aaron. So we have to look for a moment at who exactly is Korach. He's actually the cousin of Moses. Their fathers were brothers. He's a Levite. He's from the family of Kahat. We read that this morning as well. And this family, you may or may not remember, was chosen to carry the ark, which was a very prestigious position. He wasn't satisfied with the fact that he and his family were there carrying the ark. They wanted more, or he wanted more. There, there is, you might say there are some merit to Korach's arguments. Today we might say that Korach believed in a democracy. He wanted to be elected to that position. Because when he says all the community is holy, isn't that exactly what God said in Leviticus 19? He said, Kedeshim you, you shall be holy. And he wasn't speaking to just Moses and Aaron. He was speaking to all the Israelites. He also calls the Israelites in Exodus 19, Mamlechet Kohanim, a kingdom or a nation of priests. So wait, they're all priests. But you're serving in a different place within that priesthood. In 1987, Thomas Jefferson wrote to James Madison, I hold it. That's what I said? Um, see, you are listening. In 1787, he, he is when he wrote it. I probably read it in 1987. But in, in 1787, Thomas Jefferson wrote to James Madison, I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing and is necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. He said, it is a medicine necessary for the sound health of government. But who's Korach arguing with? Is he arguing with Moses? Is he arguing with Aaron? Because who set up the responsibilities of each and every tribe? It wasn't them. Now here's, that's the easy part, I know, because we know it was God. So we can see that Korach is obviously in the wrong. You could even say he was, how many remember the the movie with Al Pacino, um, I remember the line. I don't remember the movie. Somebody will come up with it in a second. You're out of order. Yeah, somebody knows that one. Yeah, you do. So that's what Korach was. He was out of order. But to understand his mistake, we need to look at the past merits of his actual arguments and the way he presents his arguments. When we see the way Korach and Moses argue, we can learn three basic principles of the best way to argue. There are more, but these are the basic ones I came up with. First of all, Korach represents the pattern or the example of how not to argue. The Mishnah says in Avot 519, and I'm not going to read the Hebrew because most don't understand it, but it's translated like this. 
It does lose something in the translation, by the way, but it comes out. Any dispute that is done for the sake of heaven will have a constructive outcome. But if it is not done for the sake of heaven, it will not have a constructive outcome. That kind of should sum it up, but that's not what Korak was doing. Korak was the example of someone who was arguing not for the sake of heaven. It was for himself. He had ulterior motives. Even though his argument expressed equality, he's not looking for equality. He's trying to promote his own personal advancements. He might have represented himself as arguing for the benefit of everyone else, but that's not what he was doing. He wanted to be elevated to high priest. In the end, winning an argument means having a constructive outcome. So when you said earlier, some that said they won arguments, did you have a constructive outcome? Because having a constructive outcome means that we have to ask ourselves honestly and sometimes repeatedly, is this argument for the sake of heaven or is it for other less commendable purposes? Were you just trying to get our point across and the other person gave in? Or does our argument really have merit? The second basic principle of arguing is how to respond in the heat of the argument. When Korach approached Moses with his complaints, Moses said, Boker veyoda, in the morning, Adonai will reveal who is his and who is holy. Now, a question comes up here. When Moses challenged them to come back with their fire pans and such, did God say to do that? So we had a little discussion this morning about that. Moses said it. However, there is the argument that God didn't tell him not to do that. God allowed it to happen. On the same, by the same token, had Korach and his band of 250 people, had they been following after God and his spirit and his wisdom and his knowledge, they would have probably called Moses out for it. Because they would have known that that was not the way to do things. But in today's, today's vernacular, we may kind of translate what Moses said was, let's sleep on it. But it's just the opposite of the advice that that great modern-day philosopher, Phyllis Diller, once said, never go to bed mad, stay up and fight. There's actually something to be said about that. Because if you don't resolve the argument... Uh, you're not going to sleep well anyway. So you might as well come to a conclusion. I wouldn't say fight about it. So why does Moses wait? He decides he's going to do it in the morning to prove Korach wrong. Why doesn't he just have it out right now? Let's get it over with. I know when Batya and I have had disputes. Oh, you thought we didn't have disputes? Whenever we've had disputes, we've tried very hard to make sure we didn't go to bed angry. We may agree that we'll put it off to another time to come to a conclusion, but we don't go to bed angry about it. So why does Moses wait? Why doesn't he just do it right now? Well, see, that man reads his Bible. See, he didn't refute him, and Rashi gave that 
very explanation that Moses wanted Korach time, give him time to repent. So you're right there in the, right with Rashi on that one, Ron. Because remember, time after time after time, Moses interceded for the people. This isn't any different. Remember, Moses' goal was not to show Korach how much smarter he is, but he wanted to achieve the ultimate goal, and that was a resolution to the argument. In this case, Moses' ultimate goal was to be the leader that God wants for his people, not which people decide to step up and they want to be the leader. Instead of wiping them out and humiliating them, he wants them to cool down and repent. What's interesting to me, this overnight sleeping on it, resulted in all 250 plus Korach and his company to still be in the same mood and same mode the next morning. They, none of them, none of those repented. Sometimes when we get into an argument, our first instinct is to refute the other person. I mean, how many know what I'm talking about? You know, somebody says something that you believe is wrong, you automatically want to refute them. We want to knock them out right then and there and get them to understand we're right and they're wrong. You may remember this story, too. There, was, there are sources that say that President Truman had a rule that before sending an angry letter, he would put it in his drawer for three days. After three days, almost all of those letters ended up getting torn up. They didn't have shredders back then, but today they would have shredded, he would have shredded them. But there was one exception. A Washington Post reporter insulted his daughter's singing ability. And President Truman wrote a letter himself, walked it across Pennsylvania Avenue at 7.30 in the morning to drop it off in the mailbox. And he wrote these words to that reporter. I just read your lousy review of Margaret's concert. I've come to the conclusion that you are an eight-ulcer man on four-ulcer pay. It seems to me that you are a frustrated old man who wishes he could have been successful. When you write such poppycock as was in the back section of your paper, you work for what shows conclusively that you're off the beam and you're at least four of your ulcers are at work. Someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. Wow, I'd hate to see the letters he threw away. But according to tradition, Korok's own children were initially involved and were actually leaders in this rebellion. But they, overnight, decided to repent. Because Numbers 26.11 tells us that Korok's sons, however, did not die. See, God still had a purpose and a plan, even for the line of Korach. They eventually became important in God's plan. How many have read through the Psalms? And check the notation at the beginning of some of the Psalms. Psalm of the sons of Korach. Psalms of the sons of Korach. So they wrote some of our Psalms. They were wonderful priests 
after their ancestor had his little hissy fit and was destroyed, but they came to the right mind, they came to their senses, they repented. So because the children of Korah repented, they were able to contribute to Israel's history in a positive way. As a matter of fact, the prophet Samuel was a descendant of the children of Korah. So because Moses allowed them the time to repent, he was able to win even though he didn't refute Korah immediately. The Torah approach is to wait. The Mishnah teaches in Avot 4.23 that do not try to approach your friend in the time of his anger. And that's a principle that I think many husbands and probably some wives have learned. Don't try to approach when there's anger because then it turns into more than just an argument, more than just a a disagreement. It turns into a very big fight. So then the second step to winning an argument could be to wait until morning, literally and figuratively. That brings us to the third step to winning an argument. The first words of this portion said, literally, Korach took. That's why I I said that earlier before I read that I was going to do the translation separately because the translation doesn't say that he took anything until the end of that first verse. But in the Hebrew, it starts off saying, Baikach Korach, and took Korach. What's interesting, and Mike and I had a little bit of a discussion about this, since most Torah portions start with a significant word in the beginning of the portion, why didn't Vayikach get chosen as the, start, as the name of the parasha? And he took. It would have been very appropriate. Instead of naming Korach specifically, it could have started off saying, and he took. Because we have others that said, and they came, and he stood, and he, without naming anybody. But Rashi says this. He took himself to an extreme position. At the very beginning of his arguments, Korach took the position that, it, that was totally one-sided. He was not willing to hear what Moses had to say. He was not even willing to hear what God had to say at this point. He was unwilling to consider any other side but his. He saw no merit in Moses' position or any other position. He rejected everything altogether. In his mind, it was my way or the highway, so to speak. But when we argue, no matter how right We might think we are. We might think we are. We have to try to see the other side's position. That's the way you win an argument. You don't win an argument by proving my I'm right and there's nothing you can say that I can agree with. You have to you have to consider what the other person has to say because there can be merit in there. There could be a, a little bit of right and wrong on both sides. And that's how we can achieve the goal. And the ultimate goal is pleasing, pleasing God. We've all heard the saying, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. 
That's what, kind of what Moses was trying to do. Or the other way you can look at it is, is it's easier to get what you want by flattering people and being polite to them than making demands. How many times have you been in a, we'll call it an argument for lack of a better term, with someone, and they were demanding certain things of you? Doesn't that kind of push you back a little bit first? You don't want anybody to demand anything of you, especially if you think what they're saying is wrong. Demands are not going to win the argument. But see, think about the situation of Korach and Moses. What was Moses' ultimate goal? It wasn't to defeat and punish Korach. Ultimately, it was to better lead God's people the way God wanted him to do. Now, it could have turned out the other way around. The next morning, God could have spoken to Moses and said, you know what, Korach is right. Maybe it's time that he step up and take over. Moses would have had to be willing to relinquish his authority at that point. But that's not what God had in plan. And Korach rejected everything. Again, he took himself to an extreme position, as Rashi said. But contrast that with the lessons that Moses and Aaron learned in this parsha. There's many examples in this story of how Moses and Aaron learned that if they truly want to win the argument, they need to look at Korach's argument from the perspective of Korach and try to learn something even from Korach. See, Korach is eventually and undoubtedly dejected, and he must feel defeated. But Moses and Aaron still need to look very carefully and see the merit, if there is any, in Korach's argument. The Torah teaches that there is an instructive way to argue, even with someone as terribly wrong as Korach. You can reject and accept at the same time. Here's two examples. First, Moses had commanded Korach and his 250 followers to bring an incense, pan, uh, incense offering on fire pans. And those fire pans will be placed near Aaron's fire pan, and God will be the ultimate judge. Of course, God chose Aaron's pan. We know that from the story. And that the earth opened up and swallowed up the 250 rebels. But then God commands Moses to do what? Take those 250 fire pans of those, re- those rebellious men, and what did he have them do? flatten them out, and make them as a covering for the ark. That's on the surface, sounds a little strange. But then in Numbers chapter 16, it says that they were holy. For they were present before Adonai, making them holy. So even the fire pans of those that were rebelling and defeated were holy and were used for a holy purpose. We were talking this morning, and, you know, all of you felt the earthquakes, right? At least one, if not. (laughs) And the question came up, okay, so the earth shook and everything, right? Okay, with Korach and his 250 people, the earth opened up and swallowed them. How how high, high was the magnitude of that? I said zero because it was an act of God. He didn't have to shake the earth to open it up. He just opened it up. So I say it was a 0.0. 0. 
because nobody felt an earthquake. On the contrary, what did we find out they did, Mike? They ran away when they saw this happening. The second example is after the plague is stopped, God promises Aaron that he will receive special priestly gifts from the people. In in, uh, chapter 18, verse 12, it says that Aaron gets all the finest olive oil. It's kol chelev yitzhar. Yitzhar means pure oil. Not just any olive oil, pure oil. And God is saying that Aaron gets the best. But if you recall in Exodus 6, Yitzhar is also the name of Korach's father. The sons of Yitzhar were Korach, Nepheg, and Zichri. So symbolically, this verse could also be teaching us that Aaron would take the best parts of Yitzhar. In other words, he should incorporate the best parts of Korach's argument. So there's merit there somewhere. And Moses and Aaron were to take those good qualities and the merits of what Korach was saying and utilize them. Korach wasn't 100% wrong. He was 100% wrong in what he was doing and how he was doing it. But he wasn't 100% wrong. So Aaron was being instructed here to use what he was right about moving forward. But the rebellion of Korach shows us the consequences of usurping the authority of God and those he has chosen to be the leaders of his people. Once again, God's the one to put everybody in their positions. Who is Korach? Who is anybody to come along and say, no, Moses, you're taking too much on yourself, even though his own brother and sister did the same thing. And his sister was punished for it. Matter of fact, the entire nation was punished for it because they had to wait for her to get over her impurity before they could move on, as if they hadn't been out there long enough, which was their fault as well. But there are many Koraks alive today. Look at our government. Look at foreign nations. There are many Koraks alive today. But we need to always remind ourselves how to argue with them. Unfortunately, sometimes our leaders don't quite express the argument kindly. And sometimes they don't choose their words very carefully. And if we were in that position, we, we say we would probably not say that. But then again, you know what? We don't know what we would say if we were in that position. For one thing, I wouldn't want to be in that position. I don't want to be in a government position of any kind. But then we should also know how not to argue. Sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut than to say anything. So if we keep that in mind, Knowing how to argue and how not to argue, maybe we can remember what it means to truly win the argument. And is winning everything? Not always. I've found that I've been in a position where I've had, I want to call it a dispute with somebody, and I came out ahead. 
But in the end, I lost because I lost the relationship with the person. Was it worth it? At the time, I thought it was. In retrospect, it's never a good thing to drive someone away just because you can't agree on something. So sometimes I always say, let's agree to disagree. And sometimes that's the best way to look at it. And oftentimes, when you do that, when you sleep on it, sometimes you wake up with a different attitude. Sometimes the other person wakes up with a different attitude. It doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. And if you looked at the bulletin today, you know that the name, the title of this message was Right or Wrong. It's not important if you're right or wrong. It's not important if you win or lose an argument. What's important, are we doing what God called us to do? Are we accomplishing his purpose? Whether we lose the argument or win the argument, we still need to be accomplishing his purpose in everything we do in front of everyone we come into contact with. We should never drive people away just because we don't agree with them. Now, there are some things, and you would know, you know what they are, that you, you should probably never argue about with certain people. I stay away from those arguments. I will, that's when I use the phrase, I will let's agree to disagree because we never will come to an, the same mindset on this. So let it go. What's that, what's, that phrase, what's that famous quote from Frozen? Let it go, Elsa. We should learn to let it go sometimes. Because trust me, and I've been there, and I'm sure many of you have been there, the other person's not going to let it go if you don't. It has to be a mutual thing. Let it go. Forget about it. Maybe later on, at some other time in the future, You'll have a chance to revisit it. And then maybe you have the ability to hash it out and come to an agreement. But if you're not coming to an agreement, agree quickly and just move on. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you and we bless you because we know that we may not always be right, but you are. And as long as we listen to you and follow after you and allow your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to be our guide, to lead us in your path of righteousness, to be our light so that we can be a light to the rest of the world, we know that we can't do it on our own because we will end up being wrong. But as long as we follow after you and allow you to direct our ways, our each and every step, then we know we'll be in the right. So it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. We just know that you're right always and that we could be wrong a lot. Help us to know when to keep our mouths shut. Help us to know when to turn away and walk away from the argument. Help us to know the difference between arguing in the flesh and arguing for the sake of heaven. Help us to always do your will. Help us to always look to you to be our guide so that we won't make the wrong steps. Don't let us be the ones that end up being the negative one that drives away a potential convert to your kingdom. We are indeed your ambassadors. We know as your ambassadors, that's a great responsibility, a tremendous responsibility. And we can drive people away just as easily as we can draw them in. Sometimes easier. 
to drive them away. I pray that we would never be those ambassadors to say the wrong things at the wrong times and cause someone to turn away from you because of our actions and our words. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, your goodness today on this Shabbat day. In Yeshua's name.